0: Blog Talk Radio
1: Good morning welcome to NJSBA's Blog Talk Radio show Conversations on New Jersey Education A show dedicated to creating a conversation Among those of us in the education community And beyond on the important education issues of the day a conversation that brings the state leaders and educational leaders to you, and I hope that you feel free to join in on the conversation. My name is Ray Penny, and I will be your host for this morning. A couple of ground rules. First, we will not be using the chat room feature of the show today if you're looking on the, the web. If you are interested in calling in, a few things you should know. To so call in, dial 1 347 989 8904. When you are ready to make a comment or ask a question, press 1. And that will indicate in our switchboard that you're ready to make a question. Uh, I have someone screening the calls, and her name is Christy. So, uh, and she will get your name and where you're from and the question or topic so that I'm prepared if need be. Also, if you're trying to listen on the phone line and the web, it's, there's, it's a little confusing. They're not synchronized. So, if you're on the phone, I ask that you only listen on the phone. Uh, and I probably will not be taking calls in the first five minutes or so anyway, uh, so be patient. Uh, today's show is a little bit different in that in past shows, the conversation was geared more towards board, for board members and uh, school administrators, but this show is uh, geared more for parents and those in the community who have questions about how school budgets and school funding uh, is works in the state of New Jersey. All districts at this point are about to submit their final budgets and soon, soon there will be public hearings on the local budgets. While superintendents, business administrators, and school board members have spent hours on the budget. Many parents and members of the community may enter the process at the end during the public hearing session, so naturally they have a lot of questions on how school budgets are created and how priorities are set. In today's show, we hope to answer some of those questions that may arise. To do so, I've assembled a panel to answer some of those questions, and I have reached out to some parent groups to get some frequently asked questions. In addition, I'll ask my uh, panelists to refrain from using too much education jargon, such as acronyms. Uh, with me today are they're very talented, and knowledgeable individuals. First, I have Mike Calvert, director of legal and policy services with the Jersey School Board Association. Welcome, Mike.
2: Thank you, Ray. Good to be here.
1: And Mike, how long have you been with the association, and what's your background, briefly?
2: Well, I've uh, I've been with the association to uh, be 23 years, and at the end of this month, in the legal and policy services department. Before joining the association, I was a math teacher for 13 years, five years middle school, eight years high school, and two years in private practice, and part of our firm's responsibilities was to be represented certain school boards. So and I will tell you, for the 23 years I've been here, it has never been dull. <laughs> uh,
1: and it's not getting any duller, I'll tell you that.
3: Also no, with us
1: is James Edwards, the business administrator with Brick Township. Welcome, Mr. Edwards. Uh, thank you, Ray. Thanks for having me. And could you tell us a little bit about your background and a little bit about Brick so that we know what type of
3: district Brick is for those from North or South Jersey? Sure, sure. Uh Brick Township is uh located in Central New Jersey on the East Coast. Um is is known as uh one of the communities on the East Coast with the most waterfront property, being it uh uh rivers, lagoons, bayfront. Um it's a um a a middle a middle class blue-collar community. Uh, most of our residents, if uh, well, I'll say I'll say a large majority of our residents are, are commuters. Um, Parkway is very accessible here in Brick Township, so we have a lot of folks who commute to northern New Jersey or even to, into New York City for for work. Um, I've been with Brick Township for just over three years. Uh, prior to that, I was in a small rural community known as Palmstead or New Egypt, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. I was there for almost ten years. Uh, Prior to that, I was the Assistant Business Administrator in uh, Point Pleasant Borough, which is a a middle-sized community, again, blue-collar, right here next to uh, Brick Township. And prior to that, I spent six years working for an auditing firm as a certified public accountant doing primarily school district audits. So I've got a long history with working with schools and seeing how things have developed and changed over those years.
1: Okay, and finally, our third panel. Now, when we sent the advertisement out, we had Dr. Valerie Gojer from uh, Bernard Township, but uh, she had, had a daughter who was having a baby today. So uh, filling in is Dr. James Crisfield from the Milburn School District. Uh, Dr. Crisfield, welcome. Thanks, Ray. Good morning. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about Milburn and uh, your background briefly?
0: Certainly. Milburn is in Essex County. It's a, a suburban setting. A lot of our people either commute to New York City or or work in the financial district somewhere nearby. It's also very near uh, Newark Airport, so there's a lot of uh, transportation options here. We're a K-12 district with about 4,900 students or so. We've got five elementary schools, one middle and one high school. The um, district factor group is J. That's just a jargon for uh, the fact that it's a very high socioeconomic uh, community very high expectations and actually there's a very high level of support for the school. So it's a it's actually a great place to work. Um I personally have been in education for a little over twenty years, a high school teacher in Summit for five years. And then I moved on to be a school business administrator for eight years in two different districts, East Hanover and Warren Township. And then I've been a superintendent for seven years in Warren Township and now here in Millburn Township.
1: Okay. Uh thank you. So um uh Let's get to the first question which is a pretty basic question. Um, how do you decide the priorities in the school district and how much is spent on what uh in for district? And uh, Mr. Edwards I'll ask you that first question, which is the basic how does how do you, the district decide
3: its priorities? Well I, I in in, in Brick Township here we do what's known as a zero based budget. So we um we have program managers um who oversee the various schools, such as principals at the high school and middle schools and elementary schools, and then uh, our, director of special, our director of special services for special ed, and um, director of buildings and grounds for the facilities department. And, and those program managers put together their, their wants and needs for the following school year, um, not really taking a whole lot into consideration what it was in dollar value they had the year before, but truly what it is that they need. And they put that forth to us. That process starts in uh, late November, early December. Uh, It it culminates in the February era after the board has has, uh, had an opportunity to look at that as well. And, um, you know, of course, then the the big shoe always drops in late February when we find out our state aid to figure out whether our revenue projections are going to be enough to um, meet the wants and needs of the program managers. Um, so in developing the priorities, Ray, what I would tell you is that we really rely on our professionals who are on the ground in the buildings to tell us what it is they need to provide a, a thorough and efficient education to the children.
1: Okay. Dr. Christfield, would you add anything to that? I know your district, your community probably has the high expectations of your uh, for your students.
0: Yeah, we um, we handle it. Basically the same way that Jim does down in Brick Township, I would say it's it's somewhat modified zero-based in the sense that um, in recent years we've all had to try to do more with less. Obviously that's across all districts, but but sometimes the community's expectations are such that um, the the less part isn't going to be may not allow us to do the more part. In, in, a, in a sense, if it's the expectations that we have, say, 18 AP offerings or if we have class sizes of something else in the elementary school or whatever the, the, the area, um, we may have to to jump away from zero-based and go to more of a, of a modified approach where if it's the expectations of the community that we, we continue to excel in, in whatever metric you want to use, then maybe we, we unfortunately can't. Build up from the bottom, and, and it it's frustrating for the public to, who, that comes to our board meetings and asks us, well, why don't you just why don't you just tell us what the difference is between this year and last year in terms of the budget? And when when we get asked that question in public, we can answer it about 95 percent with the numbers, and then it's the other five that maybe is is confusing or or it's hard to explain to someone who hasn't been involved since, as Jim said, the, the process starts in October. So it's kind of a a modified approach uh, here in Melbourne.
1: So that's probably an important point for parents to understand is that the budget they may look at it in February or March, but it really has goes back to the fall. Uh, One of the questions I was asked, and in fact I was at a public forum and uh, someone from the community asked how what's discretionary Uh, because they hear from their board that a lot of costs are kind of fixed. I know. Uh, Mr. Edwards talked about the base, but there are obligations that you have going into most of the years. What are those obligations, Mr. Edwards?
3: Um, well, I, you know, I, first of all, let me let me go back a second, Ray, and, and, and say to you that I'm a strong believer that uh, none of the costs within our budget are fixed. Um, we okay. certainly have control somewhat, you know, uh, of, over all of them. So, you know, when I hear people say that, that you know we can, we have no control over our utilities budget and and therefore that's a fixed cost you know I don't buy into that i and I've, I've i''ve told my peers that as well is that we we absolutely have control over our utility budget we can decide how much lighting and 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 the and the heating that's going to be applied and you know the, to to make the children comfortable I understand there has to be a certain amount of utilization um that you're always going to have but but you can't go saying that we don't have control over those aspects. You can't say we don't have control over salaries. You can't say we don't have control over benefits because all of those things are things that we as administration work with our board and collective bargaining processes to negotiate for. So, yes, we may not have control of it right now because it's a, it's a decision that's already been made, but it was a decision that at one point in the time we did have control over. So I don't so like to negotiate. say that. There's, say that.
1: So in negotiations, what you're saying is you may have made a decision and in, in year two or three of the negotiated contracted teachers, you have less discretion, but when negotiations come up, you have a lot more discretion.
3: Exactly. So so to say that these costs are fixed costs that we have no control over, I don't really feel is a fair statement because we had control over it. We made decisions that now those decisions are playing out to this is what it is.
1: Okay, uh Dr. Chrisfield, do you have anything to add on to any of the costs that you find or not Mr Edwards doesn't feel they're fixed but that are uh you have to have.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with, with Jim in that um to, to say that the, we just don't have any control over X or Y kind of passes the buck, and I don't like that either. I think it's important to distinguish between a short-term and a long-term. And in the long-term, we indeed, as Jim said, we have control over everything. We can negotiate things. We can we can make changes to um, building configurations, however you want to look at it. I do I do think, though, in the short-term, which would be like, let's say, one year – you you have a uh, collective bargaining let's say a collective bargaining agreement in place and maybe it's this it's in the middle of the of this term it's the second of the three years or whatever so the budget you're putting together for this year does have unfortunately and this is what makes it tough uh, some fixed cost in terms of how much we pay each employee. The, the variable pieces we can, and unfortunately do, reduce the number of employees. So in a sense, you have control over the total cost of the personnel line, but per person costs are fixed because that's obviously uh, was bargained, you know, two years ago.
1: That's a very good point. Uh, I'm going to be taking a caller. Uh, you know, I'll take the caller now. It's Ginger. And... Uh, ginger you're on the air and you have a question yes, uh... my question is in regards to special education and do any of you know why it's never fully funded uh... it certainly would help i think in school budgets if it was between both the wow. state and federal but all we can talk about at this point is the state Boy, i'll tell you uh, that's the question i've always had uh... <laughs> does anyone I'll want to comment on, comment on that ahead. one um, Dr. Chris Field or uh, Mr. Edwards or Mike?
2: I'll th- Ray, Mike Kelber, I'll take a shot at that. Okay. Um, on the federal level, I will, you know, IDEA has never been fully funded at the 40% level that it has... Con- was con- uh, that one ju- second, country. Mike, you Literally, use
1: IDEA. Just uh, sorry,
2: the Individual with Disabilities Education Act
3: okay. has,
2: has never been fully funded on the federal mm-hmm. level. Um, that's a political decision made by Congress. At the state level, I mean, it's, It all depends what you mean by full funding. The funding formula for special ed was revised in 2008. And and actually, without getting too technical, I'm very surprised that we haven't heard more hue and cry about that. I think it's because in 2008, everybody got 2% more in state aid, and so it sort of masked it. But the funding is driven now by um, averages, the average cost, the average number of classified students. The actual number of classified students in a district doesn't come into play in the general formula anymore, and it's all based on averages. So, what the state is essentially saying through legislation is that we're not going to support expenditures for special education when you classify kids above the state average or spend above the state average cost per pupil. I mean that's their policy decision that's being said. It's not expressly stated, but that's the inherent policy. Um, as far as excess costs of special ed, we have extraordinary costs last year because of the budget crisis. Uh, costs over forty and fifty-five thousand dollars a kid. Those funds were cut fifteen percent. Uh, so it becomes an economic issue. It becomes a political issue. So I think the the simple answer to the question is why hasn't it been fully funded? A, the the politics at the state and federal level play into that and also the amount of dollars that the state and federal government has spent.
1: Uh, Ginger, I would also add uh, one thing to that uh, because I have talked to legislators on this. One of the things that has always been a concern of theirs is that uh, if if they just have unlimited funding for special ed, they're afraid that school districts will then put more kids into special ed, and uh, it would cost the state a lot of money. So uh, they feel that there's a lot of discretion in who gets classified. I'm not sure if I would agree with that assessment, but I I have heard that. Okay. Okay?
3: Yes. But
1: it would be property tax relief, in my view, if we had full
3: funding to special ed, particularly from the federal government. I agree. Great. Right. It seems as though Ginger's uh, one of the people out there who's intelligent is actually thinking about these types of issues that are affecting school districts where full funding of special education is not not being made available. Thank you, Ginger, okay. for your thought.
0: Thank you.
3: Okay, I'll put you on hold, Ginger. Okay.
1: Um, I have a. I had a. Some people had asked me uh, some other questions. Um, Mike, maybe you can handle this one how is state aid calculated? Why do some districts get more than others?
2: Well, that's a great question. Briefly, too. Um, <laughs> and and the the answer is my favorite legal answer, which is it depends. Um, if you go to the current funding formula, the way the, the core aid for local education, something called equalized aid, is calculated is the state creates for each district something called an adequacy budget. It's an artificial construct solely for the determination of state aid there is a dollar amount established per pupil Uh, for last year it was uh, a little over ninety seven hundred dollars per pupil at the elementary level Uh, I'm sorry ninety nine seventy one more at middle more at high school There are dollar amounts attributable for at-risk kids for kids who are limited English proficient and ultimately you get a dollar amount that the state suggests for funding purposes not what you're doing locally but for funding purposes What constitutes a thorough and efficient education in your district? Each district gets a local share, half based on property values, half based on income in the community. And there's a dollar amount that's, that's put together there. The driving force in determining a local share is the amount of equalization aid that the state appropriates. So that's the number that drives the formula. And then eventually you get an adequacy budget minus your local share gives you equalization aid. There are other kinds of aid, categorical aids, for special education, for transportation, for um a variety of other areas, security, things of that nature that districts get, and there are dollar amounts attributable to that. For this hey. year, for, Ray, if I may just say for this year, the state has decided not to run the funding formula. Now, that's over the last 10 years, it's 12 years, it's probably happened eight, nine times. And what the state has decided for this year is simply to increase everybody's state aid by 1% of their general fund budget from the year before. People ask, well, how come they don't have to run the formula? The formula is a legislative enactment, and the, what's being proposed right now will be part of the State Appropriations Act that's approved in June. And essentially, the Appropriations Act the state budget will trump the funding formula. There has been litigation over the years, the most recent one during the McGreevy administration, where a district challenged the fact that the state didn't run the formula. And what the courts have said, separation of powers, legislative, judicial, executive, if the legislature decides to temporarily suspend the formula for a year, they can do that. And so the courts have upheld the legislature's ability not to run the formula.
1: I I will add, before I go on to another question, if you look at the nationwide figures, uh, well, New Jersey spends a lot per pupil, it's the first or second in the nation, in terms of uh, federal aid, we're, it's the smallest portion, and the, we're the last in the, among all the states in the amount of federal aid we receive, and we're near the bottom in terms of the percentage of aid from the state to support school budgets. Though so it does vary from district to district, Milburn, I'm sure, that receives very it's a very small percent of your school budget, right, Dr. Crisfield? That's
0: correct. Very small. Um, and,
2: Ray, if I, if I can if add one piece onto that, the simple answer to the question of why some districts get more and some get less is that mm-hmm. the driving issue is the the uh, socioeconomic demographics of the community measured by property values and by income. And there, are, right. there so, have been debates for years as to whether or not it's a fair measure And there are good arguments on both sides, but that's the one we're playing with right now. Uh,
1: Switching gears a little bit, uh, and I've heard this a number of times. Uh, When cuts are made, and Dr. Christfield, you talked about cuts to personnel that sometimes are forced to be made. Uh, Some parents have said to me, they Mm -hmm. always hear that it seems like it's almost always teachers being laid off and never administrators, which I'm not sure that is always true. But when you go to lay off staff, what are the priorities that you
0: use? when that decision comes that's a um that's one we're having to struggle with here um because for the first time in in anyone's memory we were having this budget season to to cut about 18 uh or so staff positions um the the problem that uh, I always respond to in that regard is that it's just about numbers and parents and, and the public def- and I can understand why, um, either get upset or or just don't understand why the cuts have to be made to teachers. Because that's what they that's what the public and parents see. They actually see in the classroom when they go to back to school night or when they go for a parent conference or when they go to, to celebrate something the kids are doing in class. They see the, the teachers. And they don't typically see, with perhaps the exception of the principal, any other administrators in the district that that uh, are on board. And so just by virtue of the fact that there are so many teachers as compared to so few administrators, that's why it ends up being more often than not that the teachers are cut. We we try to to keep administration to uh, a minimum which uh, includes the number of administrators, but there's there comes a point where there's only so many that you can even consider. To be cut and and cutting one or two things the size of the district, maybe more um, can help with the budget, but the problem then also becomes if you start cutting too much, then you have perhaps more teachers around, but the quality of the teaching and learning goes down because the teachers either don't have direction or they don't have professional development facilitated for them, so it's a balance of of having the number there's too many teachers there's more teachers than than administrators so that's why they they often get cut we try to cut back administration but if you cut back too far then the quality of all those teachers starts taking a hit
1: uh Mr. would you have Jim, to comment on how you do doing in your district
0: yeah i would,
3: i would also like to just point out and i'm not sure if you're familiar with this but you know texas had this uh this issue years ago when they were uh trying to drive a certain percentage of overall expenditures into the classroom and uh, Texas A&M did a study um, to try to show whether there was actually any correlation between money being spent in the classroom and student achievement and if if you read through the crux of that study and you get to the end of it what you find is that those districts that put more focus on administration and therefore accountability were the districts that actually had the most student, highest student achievement. And so, you know, I, I just to piggyback off um, what what Dr. Chrisfield said is that, you know, you, you need to have, and I know a lot of people don't want to hear this because they think of administrators as the, uh, the unnecessary evil, uh, but you need to have accountability and you need to have that professional development and learning for your professional staff, your teachers, in order to provide a high quality education to students. Um, I, and Brick here, you know, we're, we're a pretty large district. Uh, I, last time I checked, Ray, we were the 14th largest in the state. Um, we have about 1,800 employees. And last year was a the 2010-2011 budget development. was horrific for us. We had to cut $11 million out of our budget. And that equated to uh, about 90 staff people um, district-wide, you know, teachers, administrators, custodial, um, bus drivers. You know, we had across-the-board cuts. Um, it was it was pretty bad. And, of course, 54 of those 90 were teachers, and we got a lot of the same question as to, well, why don't you cut more administrators? Well, there's two things that were at play here. One is uh, we had a decline in enrollment, and we still do have a decline in enrollment. So when you have less kids, um, you, you need less education educational staff to uh, educate those kids. So that was one of the things that drove us to having the ability to, to reduce the number of teachers. But, again, uh, as, as Dr. Christopher said, it's in the numbers. I mean, you know, when you're looking at 1,800 staff members and uh, approximately 1,100 of them are teaching staff members uh, and, and 41 of them are administrators, y- you can't really cut too deeply into the administration without actually affecting services and reports and things of that nature that need to be accomplished. And then let's face it, the school district accountability regulations have put a tremendous burden on school districts in regards to what the state is requiring us now to report to them, so, and, and oftentimes, Ray, I, I, I've got a question: When we complete all these reports and we send them to the state, who's looking at them, and what are they doing with them? <laughs> because it seems to me it's, it's a you know a gigantic vault of paperwork that they're just stockpiling. That you know a lot of it, I, I understand there was probably some good intentions uh, for those districts that were were failing or struggling to provide quality education. But you know we've we've a lot of us have talked about this before the school district accountability regulations hit everybody with a giant brush and put everybody into the same category when that may not have been necessary, right which has caused uh, a lot more layers of administration to be needed to just meet the state's requirements
1: and Just to piggyback on one, two things you said uh one, I always said if you wanted to cut back on administrators, you have to cut back on administrative work, and the accountability regulations were probably the opposite of that. Uh, but the other is I think a lot of this is driven from uh, headlines uh, and high salaries of certain superintendents that have made the headline or business administrators. But if you look at the statistics, New Jersey administrative spending is probably the, the reality is we're towards the bottom of the pack and the percentage that we spend uh, nationwide. Uh, I have another caller coming on, and I'll just for anyone else, if, I see there's a few other callers. If you want to ask a question, you just press 1.0. Uh, but if you, you're listening and you want to call in, the number is one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four, and you press one, and that'll indicate to our screener that you have a question. And I have uh, Deborah from Middlesex County has a question on charter schools. Uh, Deborah, you're on the air.
3: Hi, Ray. Yes, my question is how we cope with charter school funding as a line item in our budget, specifically how we account for the specific grades they're educating versus the overall average of per-pupil student that I understand it's based on, and then how do we cope with it when our budgets are defeated and we have to cut our budget? Is that per-pupil aid also cut?
1: All right. And you're in East Brunswick?
3: I am uh, in East Brunswick, where we opened a charter school last year.
1: All right. Uh, Mike, I think this would probably be more in your line. Do um, you want to take a stab at uh, charter schools?
2: Sure. Let's talk about the way the way charter schools get funded. Um one of the components of funding, as you as, Deborah, as you indicated in a line item, each charter school is going to get a portion of your tax levy. They're going to get 90% of last year's tax levy, per pupil tax levy, inflated by the a Consumer Price Index measure. So it's basically last year's tax levy, take like 90% of the per pupil amount. That goes over. You get to keep 10. So to the extent that last year's budget may have been defeated and last year's budget was reduced there the charter schools portion of that would be reduced if the CPI the consumer price index measurement is greater than your tax levy measurement for this year which it might be the charter school is going to get adversely uh, uh, positively affected they'll get a little more money out of that if this year's budget gets defeated and is reduced by council from the tax levy perspective that really doesn't have an impact as I understand it on what the charter school gets paid over on tax levy as far as the state aid goes uh, there are a variety of different par- parts of the state aid pot that go over there charter schools get 90 percent equalization aid for pupil if you have preschool aid and, and you're, you're probably not in East Brunswick because, because of the way the formula is funded over the last few years if the district had that, they get, you know, whatever the uh, percentage that plays over for preschool and the charter. If for special education aid, it's proportional. There are a number of aids that the district gets that the charter school districts don't get. So it's it's sort of a mixed bag in that respect. Uh, you talk to the charter school advocate, they'll say that what they get is not really 90%. It's more like 67 or 70 so, but you can play the numbers and play
0: them out a lot of ways. Rick, can I can I jump in for a second? Sure. The um, th- this is not going to be uh, politically popular in some circles. But the problem that I have with the way that uh, charter schools are funded now, and this is not a comment on charter schools; it's just a comment on the way the state has chosen to fund them, is that the, the money and and Mike's point about how it's calculated is is certainly on target. But the money that comes. Uh, to a charter school comes from the local district, and that doesn't necessarily mean that there are uh, is a a dollar for dollar reduction in the district's costs. If I lose two third graders to a charter school, I don't and, and I have to pay, let's just say for the sake of argument, twenty five thousand dollars. I don't have a twenty five thousand dollar reduction in my second graders costs in the district. We is just have one less kid in the in the school, and that's what drives me crazy because. We're adding costs to the whole big picture rather than getting things more efficient.
1: Yeah, and I think in Deborah's district, uh, I think when charter schools were first envisioned, it was also in districts that were primarily state funded. And in her case, I guess it would also be that the property taxpayers uh, are affected a little bit by that decision, too. And is that one of the crux of your problems, Deborah?
3: Absolutely, and I completely agree with the fact that the reduction that we have in the public school is not equal to the amount that we have to pay the charter school. We have eight elementaries they're pulling from. So we haven't lost a teacher or a class in any single elementary school. Okay. So
1: All right, it's, had gonna... a, it's had a large impact on us. Uh, that's probably an issue, Deborah, that I think we'll be, moved... we'll be hearing a lot about. I know uh, my plug for next week's, guest is Patrick Doggin, the Chair of the Assembly Ed Committee, and that's one of the questions I will be uh, broaching with him. Uh, Deborah, I'm going to put you on hold and uh, before I move on to another subject. Thank you. But thanks for calling. Uh, one of the other questions that I, that I have uh, received, and uh, Mr. Edwards, I'll let this go to you, is a question that is often asked is, why can't schools buy things like printers, cartridges, smart boards, toilet paper, you know, all those things at Costco, or when does that save districts money? Uh, And I know you have an interesting
3: point on this one. Sure. I mean, it really gets down to um, Title 18A, 18A5, which is the school district's um, statute on purchasing or procurement. That requires uh, school districts to to either receive quotes or go out for public bidding when the aggregate of what you're purchasing exceeds certain levels, depending on whether you have a qualified purchasing agent in your district or not. Um, so, you know, the, using printer cartridges is a good example. Um, in my district, we, we exceed the amount per year that we spend on printing cartridges. We know that when we when we develop our budget, we can look that we're going to spend in excess of $29,000 a year on Uh, printing cartridges. So we know that we would have to go out to public bid for that. Uh, We actually purchase most of our stuff either through a consortium uh, of school districts that we all go out to joint bid on or we buy it from the state contract where the state does the bidding on your behalf. And and the Costco's uh, of the world are not participating in that bid. Uh, Right now, as an example, Staples is actually the low bidder um, on the uh, state contract. Now, I've had people come to me and say, you know, I see you're buying that printer cartridge from Staples through state contract, and you're paying, let's say, $200 for it. I just went to Staples in, in Brick Township, and I paid $169. So why didn't you do that? Well, well we can't. Uh, as I said, the, the, the law prohibits us from doing that. We have to actually go through a, a, a public bidding procurement process. I can't just go to the local Staples and, and buy that printer cartridge. I have to buy it off of the bid, and those bid prices are set, and at the time they were set, that's probably what the low price staples could sell it for versus what they're now discounting it for at their local stores. Um, there are items, however, that I would tell you that we do buy from Costco that aren't in aggregate. We buy stuff from Barnes and & Nobles and Costco and even from our local staples when the aggregate of those items do not exceed the, the requirement within the law for us to actually go out with a public quote or public bidding process. Okay.
1: Okay. Uh- I'm going to switch gears one more time, and this is probably something that both districts I know we're probably grappling with, as are a lot of districts. Uh, Dr. Chrisfield, you talked about having to cut staff. Uh, last year, and I know this year, a lot of districts are looking at the extracurricular activities, particularly if you're a high school district, uh, music, sports, they're considering pay-to-play. Uh, why are those issues on the board? Why does it always seem like some of the freshman sports or middle school sports or music programs Always seem to be on the chopping block, uh, Dr. Chrisfield. I'll have you answer that question first.
0: Sure. The uh, the answer to that is is um, different districts will eventually all end up at the same place in in an era where our revenues can only go up by two percent, yet certain costs like health benefits, say, go up ten percent every year. It's just gonna. It's a matter of which peripheral uh, activity the district wants to focus on first. And those things you mentioned, like freshman sports, for example. That's un- that's a first of all we all think that's a valuable piece of the overall school experience, but it's just we have to prioritize, and we can't keep all the things that we want to keep, like say like freshman sports or I don't know certain clubs or what have you, um, and there I think there's a misconception about pay to play or first of all I I, don't, I like the phrase pay to participate because once you start. Paying to play, that means that if you're the 10th guy on the basketball team, you expect to play 12 minutes a game, and that's not going to happen. So pay to participate. Um, the problem we have with that here in Milburn is these families are already paying a rather hefty amount to participate in that the booster club already gets after them to to help uh, with this fundraiser or that fundraiser, or the debate team uh, already asks parents to either contribute cash or or time to help get judges or arrange for busing or whatnot. So it, it, we have the problem of, of parents are already being asked to contribute quite a bit, and then we have the problem of of, and this is the one I think is particularly nefarious in my mind, is that if a student wants to try something, but... Knows that his family's situation is rough lately, and therefore can't really afford it. So that they so they don't reach out and try something that he's really interested in because there's a there's a fee to it. I think that's a situation that just it's it's really uh, it's heartbreaking, and I don't want to have to to uh, explain that or or have to implement that if at all possible. On the other hand, it is a revenue source, and I get that. It's just that. The inequities and kind of like the regressivity of pay to play or pay to participate is one that that steers us away from it.
1: But some districts are doing it because they feel if they don't do that, they don't have the sports or the extracurricular activity at all. Uh, But uh, Mr. Edwards, how would that? Have you considered anything that your your sports programs and other extracurricular activities changing those or eliminating some, or what was the public
3: reaction? uh yes, we have to answer your question and, and it's caused a great deal of pain to uh to us and to the uh Board of Education last year as part of the eleven million dollar budget reduction, we actually eliminated middle school sports from our two middle schools and um, the, you know that was uh something that the public uh came out to the board meetings and 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 showed that their displeasure with uh when the education job funding came about um we actually put in place that, that we would hire the coaches for the fall sports. Uh, we actually, at that time, were planning on hiring the coaches for the fall, winter, and spring sports. And also, we put in place a $50 um, pay-to-participate um, fee for those students to cover the cost of transportation and, and referees and officials and, and the such. Uh, of course, then we got the letter from, at that time, the acting commissioner uh, who told us not to spend our education job money because of consequences that may be coming with this year's budget, so we we did not proceed with funding winter sports. um, And uh, that caused even more problems because we had parents come to us and say, well, you did fall sports, and now you're not going to do winter. That's not fair. Uh, Now that we've got our state aid in place and we actually got the 1% increase of our overall budget, as as, um, Mike pointed out already, the board has decided now that we're going to use the education job bills money to pay the coaches for the spring sports, and, again, charged a $50 participation fee um, so that those sports can be provided. And, and last year in that budget process, we also cut a tremendous amount of our JV programs and freshman sports, um, and we have not brought any of those back. And, you know, it, it's it's something that, um, yes, we think they're valuable, and we and we know there's interest, and they're part of the overall educational program, but when you're getting down to the nitty-gritty And you have to decide between, um, you know, I'm going to say 26 kids per class versus 24 kids per class and middle school sports. You you need to make some decisions on which one is is at the core mission of what we do. And so in the board's case here, they decided that lower class sizes were more important than a lot of other things that ended up not making the overall final cut. Uh,
1: Dr. Christfield, you made an interesting point about these programs on the periphery. Uh, Will this be something that we have to deal with almost all districts every year, uh, as long as we have a cap in relatively flat state funding?
0: This is this is one of the um, the the main messages we're trying to get out to to residents here, but it, it applies to every district in the state. And this is the following: if if our property taxes are capped at two percent, and this is not a a, a um, criticism of that cap, it's just a fact. And other revenues are either shrinking or flat or whatever be it state aid or or local revenues and you have such big portions of the budget largely health benefits that and also i might say capital expenditures that exceed 2% each year you can control all the paper clips that you buy and you can you can maybe try to negotiate a salary increase that's under 2% and all that will work fine but with health benefits exceeding the cap every year, it's just a matter of math and time before all of these peripheral things, and I don't use that word as a, pejoratively because I think they're very important, but all of these things that are outside of the regular school day, like extracurricular sports or, or uh, clubs, are absolutely going to be um, considered for cuts every single year. And then when those are all dried up, it's going to get worse because then you're not going to have anything else to cut but things that actually go into the school day and and perhaps more into the classroom. So I don't have an answer for health benefits, and I don't have an answer for how districts are going to fund the necessary capital, um, not not add-ons or new things, but just preserving the investment that we have now in capital without um, touching all these things we're talking about.
1: It's funny because I was at a school play last night. Uh, my, my children participated at high school, and um, it's just my personal opinion. I, I feel a lot of kids, those extras are not extras. They're really co-curricular, and we sometimes lose sight of that. But that's my personal opinion on that, and I I feel bad that those things are always going to be something that we have to fight for every year. Um we're coming to the close. Is there anything that, uh, and I'll start with you, Mr. Edwards, that you do in your district that uh, maybe a lot of the community doesn't know that you do to save money in a brief amount of time?
3: Well, I would say, service you know, Ray, or something? The, the right, Ray, the thing that we've done the most focus on is alternative sources of revenue. You know, I guess a few years back we realized that being a state aid, is so unpredictable every year, and our local residents are 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 sick and tired of their taxes going up every year we need to we need to identify different ways of funding what it is that we do, so you know one of the things we did was we put solar panels up through a referendum on our one of our large high school buildings, and that's generating about a half million dollars a year in revenue to the district. Um, you know, we've, we've taken on lots of other alternate ideas. We started a before and after care program here in the district where people can go into, like I said earlier in the show, we have lots of commuters who either need help before or after work with their, their uh, care of their children. So we offer a program such as that that we, that we actually can turn uh, a small profit on. We, we offer a kindergarten wraparound program because we don't have full-day kindergarten where those who parents who decide to have full-day kindergarten um, can pay for it. Um, so we've started looking at those alternate revenue ideas to try to bring in different sources of money other than state aid and local uh revenues that we can then offset what it is that we need in the future um so that we potentially don't have to look at cutting these programs that we know are so crucial and critical to the to the development of the child.
1: Okay, I was going to ask Dr. Chrisfield but I I'm, I've run out of time. I'd like to thank Dr. Chrisfield from Milburn, Mr. James Edwards from uh Rick, Mike Calber from New Jersey School Board Association, and for the callers who called in and those who listened, I'd, all, uh, I'd like to remind you that next week, March 11th, as I said before, Patrick Doggin, Charity Assembly Ed Committee will be our, my guest, and we'll talk about the governor's budget, and I thank you for listening, um, and if you have any questions, feel free to call me at New Jersey School Board Association, and that brings us to the end of the show, and thank you.